the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. Uh, We are continuing on with the uh, series uh, entitled The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium by the author Don Enavoldson. And we were finishing up uh, last week with the chapter entitled War in the Heavens. And we finished almost that entire chapter, but there was a part that I wanted to uh, make sure that we covered um, at the very end of that chapter because it's probably one of the most uh, significant and important parts of this series. Um, We have been learning the mechanics of how spiritual warfare is conducted, uh, basically between the angelic forces of Michael the archangel and um, Hasatan, as he's called in Hebrew, which means ha means the satan means adversary and his dark kingdom and um, and in the middle of these two great warring factions and hosts if you will hosts is just another word for armies is uh, mankind <laughs> and we're in the middle of this fray if you will f r a y and um What's fascinating is even if man want, didn't want to become part of this, he's, he is part of it because he has so many different roles with these two spiritual uh, kingdoms warring against each other. Um, it's Jesus and the head of his kingdom that he is restoring uh, on the part of the Father. And it's Satan who takes him in the three temptations of Christ up to the mountain uh, the, on the second of three temptations in Luke chapter 4, and has the audacity, and as the Jews would say, he has the chutzpah, to take Jesus up to the top of the mountain and show him the earth and the nations of the earth and offer it to him that he's going to give it to him. But what's interesting about Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 with the second temptation of Christ, um, Satan makes a claim to Jesus that Jesus does not dispute. And that claim that Satan makes to Jesus is, I have the authority to give all of this, which to which he was referring, the earth, the world, if you will, and its nations, And he said, I have the authority to give it to you. It has been delivered to me. Now, notice the way Satan described that. It was in the passive voice. He didn't say, so-and-so gave it to me. He didn't didn't claim that God gave him that authority over earth and over the nations of the earth. He kept it in the passive voice by saying, it has been given to me without identifying who did it. But we know who did it who did it were human beings who earlier did have virtual complete authority and dominion 
over the earth and its workings back in Genesis 1 and 2. And we know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Through deceit and fraud and stealth, Adam and Eve were tricked into handing over their God-given delegated authority that Father God had earlier given to mankind. They, in turn, through being hoodwinked, handed that authority over to Satan. So, in essence, in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, in the second temptation of Christ, Satan could make that statement. That's why Jesus didn't dispute it. He said, I have the authority to give this over to you. So in this whole restoration of the kingdom that's going on, and we're in the middle of this battle, this spiritual warfare going on between Michael the archangel and the loyal uh, angels and Satan with the rebellious fallen angels on the other side. We're in the middle of this, whether we like it or not. And we are three things that the author says. (laughs) Mankind is the linchpin on which everything matters and leans on and depends on is what man does. Peter made a reference to that, like these are the things into which the angels long to look. It's almost like, uh, you know, the little kids uh, trying to look at the World Series, you know, back in the 30s, trying to think who, who made that painting of, the, you know, root chick, boop, Babe Ruth was up at bat, and they wanted to see over the top of the fence or the knot hole of the fence. Norman Rockwell. Yeah, he has one of those paintings. And and so these the little kids were like, we're longing to look at the World Series because we want to watch Babe Ruth get up to bat. Well, it's almost that same sort of flavor that P- Peter the Apostle in his epistle says, these are the things into which the angels long to look. They're fascinating, fascinated with what's going on with human beings. Because God is the one in his original design, Father God set us up as the centers of authority. Now, we've covered that in previous shows. I don't want to go into that, but I'll just give you this one sentence summary, which is just basically we have a lot of authority as human beings by design, by intent, by planning through God's blueprint. But we have very little actual power to carry out that authority. On the other hand, contrasting that, the angels, both fallen and loyal, have an incredible amount of power, but they can't use it. They can't implement it. They can't carry it out or release it without getting the authority from someone who legally has it. So we have to understand the background of the spiritual rules of the game. And once we understand that, then we can understand how we can defeat Satan when he uses his tactics against us. And it's all about using power and authority. And this is what we're going to talk about in today's show. But one thing I wanted to point out was the um, author said in um, the chapter that follows this, listen to what he says. Um, There's a a state of war between these two spiritual armies of loyal and fallen angels in which mankind, listen to this, we have three roles here. We are simultaneously the prize. They're fighting over us. Why? Because we have the authority. They can't function unless and until we delegate or release our authority to them or they operate through permission from us who have legal authority. We are the prize. We are the battleground. And where's the battleground? It's it's the battle for our thought life, our minds. Everything that uh, occurs in the spiritual realm has to be introduced into human thinking first before it's carried out. And we are also the principal combatants. 
And what's the issue? It's uh, it's for the rulership of God as king of his kingdom, of which we are a part, or against God for the rulership of the kingdom with God as king. So against that. That's it. That's it. That's what it's all about. So I want to go back to the point we were making at the end of last week's show, which was how do we defeat Satan with his tactics and his maneuverings? And the author makes a very interesting statement at the very end of the chapter of War in the Heavens. He says, the means by which heavenly warfare is ultimately resolved is not through the power of good angels. Now listen, it's not through the power of good angels overcoming the power of evil angels or fallen angels. It's not a power issue. And I must admit, before I read this book, that's pretty much how I viewed it. But rather, heavenly warfare is ultimately resolved by the people, the human beings of God's kingdom, deciding to submit their authority. You get that? The people, the human beings of God's kingdom deciding to submit their authority to the direction or the obedience, if you will, of their king. Father God is king and Jesus Christ, his son who is going to be king over the earth and when he returns. And in that process, if we decide to submit our human authority delegated from Father God to the direction of him as he asks us and commands us to do certain things. And we say, yes, we're submitting our authority to say, thy will be done, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. What occurs in the spiritual realm is like a spiritual science cause and effect. Check this out. When we do that, when we say, yes, Father, your will be done, whatever the cost. That's kind of how Jesus prayed in the night uh, before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane. Basically saying, Father, if it's possible that this cup passes from me. But but the key word that he said in that garden, in that dramatic moment. And, of course, the angels were (laughs) longing to look into what the Son of God And the son of man, whether he was going to be able to restore the father's kingdom in that moment. And this is what he says, nevertheless. And some Bibles say, yet, not my will, but thine be done, yours be done, father. In that moment, Satan knew he was toast. Game over. Because he had no authority over God's son who decided ahead of time, who decided that even if it kills me, literally, torturously, in the worst possible way, kills me, I am going to do the will of my father. And Satan can't function or operate or continue without authority and and Jesus denied it to him in that moment in the garden he says no you got nothing over me you're not getting any authority over me I'm not giving you permission to influence me in my thoughts in my decisions in my acts in my words nothing you got nothing over me and so here's what happens in the spiritual realm when we decide to submit our authority to the direction of 
Father God, saying, Thy will be done, Father, just as it says in the Lord's Prayer. What happens in the spiritual is that we are authorizing, legitimizing, giving legal permission to the angelic armies of Michael, the archangel. The the archangel, the head of the loyal angels who remained with Father God and his plan for earth. We authorize the angelic armies of Michael to triumph or to have victory over while denying the angelic armies of Satan any authority at all by which they can act. In other words, we cut off their access to release their power because someone somewhere somehow gave them authority. And we're saying, "Uh uh-uh, nope, we're going to make the same decision that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane made. And we're saying, it's all about you, Father. And isn't that what the Lord's Prayer is all about? I mean, when you think about it, isn't that what the Lord's Prayer is all about? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. And, and these next two lines are not petitions. They're not requests. These are, these are commandments that we've been given authority to do because we, we are now saying, Father, your kingdom come. That's a command. That's to let the angels know that there's a new sheriff in town named Jesus Christ of Nazareth or Yeshua HaMashiach in the Jewish, in the Hebrew name. There's a new sheriff in town and we're his deputies. And as his deputies of this new sheriff, I mean, that's what John the Baptist was announcing. You know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. And kingdom is government. Kingdom is God's order. And we're petitioning saying we are a mess down here and we want you, Father, to bring your government back to earth. And that's why... Jesus showed up to restore. That's the whole point of it. He's restoring our authority. He's he's reauthorizing us. Read on your own Matthew chapter 10 when he sends out the 12 uh, apostles. What are his instructions and what does he tell them? Check it out also in Luke chapter 10. When Jesus sends out the 70, what does he tell them? He tells them, I'm giving you all authority over the power of the enemy. Isn't that interesting? Authority trumps Satan's power. He says that. I'm giving you all authority over the power of the enemy. And you're going to step on serpents. You're going to step on scorpions. And nothing of his by any means will harm you. As long as they were obeying, Satan had no authority. That's how uh, Satan gets authority from us is as we disobey, as we don't submit our will to Father God's will. That's how he gets access to our authority. But the moment we make the same decision of Jesus in that garden and saying, I don't, even if it kills me, I'm going to do your will, Father. Satan's done. It's over with. He's toast finished so revelation chapter 12 shows how this spiritual battle plays out satan in revelation 12 is identified as the great dragon or the ancient serpent who's called the devil and satan and this is his job description if you want a description he's the deceiver of the whole world the power of lies But Satan's primary means of gaining authority, now this is key. This is what I wanted to hammer home to you before we moved on. Satan's primary means of gaining authority over humanity is through accusing us, through accusations, pointing out before the court of heaven that humans are also in rebellion against God as much as he is. 
basically saying they don't do your will. Obedience is no big deal to many of church teachings right right now. Obedience isn't emphasized very often, hardly ever. And we have to realize when we say it's not a big deal that we obey God, we are what what's happening behind the scenes and the mechanics in the operations of the spiritual realm. We're giving access and authority to Satan so he can have power over us. He's got to have the authority before he can release his power over us. He's got to have both. And as we don't obey God, he gets more authority and more access over us to release his power to control our lives. So, he's there day and night accusing us. In Revelations 12.10, he is called the accuser of the brethren, accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night, nonstop before our God. Can you imagine? There they go again, Father. You're going to judge me as head of the fallen angels? Because what I rebelled in Isaiah 14, or I rebelled against you in Ezekiel 28, you're going to come after me and put them in charge when in reality they're doing and thinking and saying and acting just like me? In other words, rebelling against you? So how do you put them in charge and not, and not me? In other words... He's accusing God of being hypocritical. You're not consistent. You're not who you say you are. You're not a God of of, uh, justice. What justice is that? So, the author goes and he says, this is how Satan gained justification for his original uh, rebellion. So, the reality of Satan's attempt to get authority over us is one of the most important reasons why obedience to God is essential. It's not, yeah, if I feel like it. No. This is cause and effect. If we blow off, do and thy will be done, we are calling down a whole lot of opportunity and door opening and window opening that Satan can pour in and basically run our life by putting us into a jail, a prison of darkness where we are in captivity. I mean, ask people who have addictions of whether they, they have a power over their own lives, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography. Anywhere the door was opened through permission, through legal authority, through access, Satan comes in full bore and says, ah, I got him. These future kings and priests in Revelations 5, they're going to rule and reign the earth, really? Give me access and watch what I do with them. So, Obedience to God is essential. It has nothing to do with our initial salvation, which is a matter of being justified by faith, according to the author, or justified by trust. But that's the beginning of the journey. It's not the end. We teach it as if it were the end of the journey. No. Salvation is a gift of an opportunity. It's more like a scholarship than it is a diploma. We have to walk the journey out. And the goal, as we've talked about in earlier sessions, is eternal life, which is knowing God, relationally knowing God in your heart, not knowing about God in your mind, as a good Greek would think, but knowing God in your heart as a Hebrew would experience. And as we know him and his son, the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent, that's eternal life. And that happens moment by moment second by second, we control where our thoughts are. Are we getting to know him better in the, in the here and now? Because ex- eternal life, if we know God, we can have it now. It's relational, not relocational. 
Okay. So, rather, obedience, now listen to this, is the means by which the accuser is finally silenced. If we are obeying God, saying, what's your will here situation, what, in this particular situation, Father? What do you want me to do here? What do you want me to say here? More frequently, what do you want me to think about? this here and now. That's how we get control over our thought life. We ask him that frequently. What do you want me to think next? So, obedience is the means by which the accuser is finally silenced. If he has nothing to accuse us with, to accuse human beings with, Satan has no authority to inflict harm on us as human beings, as the co-regents and agents of God, as the sons of the Most High God, as children of the Most High God. He has no authority to inflict harm on us because he can't accuse us because we are doing thy will be done in the here and now, in the present moment, all the time. We'll talk about a little bit more about this when you come back from the break. We are almost finished. God bless you. Welcome back from the break, saints. So we're wrapping up this War in the Heavens chapter, uh, talking about the relationship between uh, authority and power, and um, basically being able to deny Satan any authority over us. How do we do that? How do we deny access or authority of Satan over us? So I'm going to finish up with this in this chapter. In uh, Revelations uh, twelve eleven, it tells three things on how the end time saints overcome the um, the tactics of the enemy of Satan, and it says, "And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they no, they loved not their lives unto death." Every any time I have heard this preached in a in a church, why is it that most of the time? The preachers would preach the first two, but they wouldn't mention the third one. So the author says the blood of the lamb, which is the death of Jesus on the cross, as a substitutionary sacrifice, which allows we as human beings to consider all accusations of Satan to be already satisfied. That's how powerful the blood of the lamb is. That's why we plead the blood. The word of their testimony, in part, is the confession of faith or trust in the redemptive power of of the blood of the lamb. Why is there power in the blood? It's because Jesus obeyed to the point of death. That's why we plead the blood. We say, look, Jesus broke the back of Satan's rebellion when he said in the garden, even if it kills me, Father, I'm going to do your will. So that's why there's power in the blood of the lamb. Um, The word of their testimony is also representative of stepping into the Christians, the true sold out Christians, Uh, who step into their roles as God's vice regents or co-regents, if you will, um, whose job it it is to speak the will of God into existence. In other words, they've done their homework, they've prayed, they've gone to God, they've done their due diligence and asked God, what do you want to have done here? What is it that we need to do? And whether that included fleeces, um, as Gideon did, or you know, whatever it takes, they're convinced, okay, God wants this done. Well, fine, if, if you are, have done your homework on that and you know he wants it done, well, it's your job as vice regent or his co-regents on earth with the authority to bring his kingdom to earth. It's now your job to command it into existence, into being. And again, I'll say it again. Those two lines in the Lord's Prayer are not petitions. When we say to Father God in that prayer, because that's who we're praying to, our Father, right? When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, those are not petitions. Those are commands of human beings who have been given the authority to speak God's will into the earth, into the operations of what's going on on earth. And now notice the third element. Finally, these saints overcome in, Re- in Revelations twelve eleven by the complete dedication of their lives to the kingdom of God, to the order of God, to God's government. 
So this means that anything that the old nature of mankind that would want to do that would compete against carrying out God's order or God's kingdom has to be set aside, has to be put to death. And that's done a little time, a little bit at a time. Okay. This isn't done all with, you know, add water and shake. It takes this journey to walking this out and saying, if there's something that's competing with God's will, um, we have choices to make. Okay. And that's just a continuous a sanctification process. It's a continuous consecration prog- a process of s- basically saying it's either God's way or our way. And God sets up these circumstances for us to have to choose. I mean, he doesn't want us to have one leg on each side of the fence and straddling the fence. He sets up these, these uh, situations in which we have to choose. Don't think that anything that's happening in your life is serendipitous or coincidental. In fact, the word coincidence does not even exist in the Hebrew language. So um, the author says, loving not their lives into the death also means persevering in faith to our persecution, even if that leads to martyrdom. You know, how many churches would you hear this preached? But that's the kingdom. This is uh, why this book is so powerful. It's a message for our day. We are living in momentous times. And the decisions that we make in the here and now will have eternal consequences. And we we will not always get a do-over. At some point, it comes to an end. And... Um, we can't say, oh, well, it'll all come out in the wash. Really? You know, when Jesus in Matthew 7, I think it was, um, 7, 13, he talks about the road to eternal life. Now, eternal life is not heaven in that context. We already defined that. It's in John seventeen three, Knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's eternal life. Okay? And he describes the process of What's the goal in the kingdom? He says, look, access to eternal life is the narrow road. And broad is the way to destruction. And and this is the zinger right here. We think most people are going to be saved. Jesus is describing something, I think, differently. He's saying, few there are who find it. Few there are that find it. Eternal life is not relocation to a place. Jesus didn't come so that when I die, I get to go to heaven. I'm not anti-heaven. I love heaven. I want to go to heaven when I die. But that's not why Jesus came. 1 John 3 eight. he came to do away with the works of the devil. Where are they? Well, they're in me. And I need to be cleaned out. I need be to be purified as a son of, the, of Levi, as they say. Okay, if we're going to be future kings and priests, guess what? There has to be a purification process, and that's a $25 word that you'll hear is sanctification. Okay? Because the Godhead wants to indwell us. It's so much more intimate than how we preach it. And our, our coming back with Jesus is to rule and reign not on the clouds. It's here over our inheritance Check out Psalm 115. Who does the earth belong to? Check out Psalm 115. What does it say? Check out Psalm 2. Psalm 8. Who does the earth belong to? So, going back to Revelation uh, 12, 11, the author wraps up with this. These three steps, and what he means by these three steps, I'll go over them again. They conquered Satan. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. This is how the author sums sums it up. These three steps are the key to victory in our spiritual warfare. Okay? They're the key. They are, this is the the $64,000 declaration here. They are the means by which all authority is withdrawn from Satan, okay, and transferred over to Michael the archangel. 
They are the kingdom of God on offense, attacking the gates of hell and overwhelming them. Don't forget what Jesus told Peter. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail, the building of his church. Well, gates are not on offense. Gates are a defensive mechanism. Isn't that interesting that he used the term gates there? So, if you want to talk about warfare, um, not many people think that the quartermaster corps is very important. The quartermaster corps is probably one of the most important functions of an army. The quartermaster corps is where the food is given to the troops. The quartermaster corps is where the ammunition is given over to the troops to keep them supplied, not just with food, but with ammunition. And if you cut off Satan's access to any authority over you, by saying, every thought, every word, I'm going to run it by the filter of the Holy Spirit. What's a good verse to, to do that? Well, how about Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5? We war not against principalities and powers in the air. But I'm just, that's not, well, actually, you know what? Let me just quote you. Actually, I've got the New King James right here. But this is the verse that I think is probably the most powerful in the description of how spiritual warfare is to be carried out. Because don't forget, we're the prize, but we're also the battleground. And our minds are where this battleground of, between the two spiritual forces take place. Check this out. This is 2 Corinthians 10, 3. Though, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, what strongholds is it referring to? Well, describe it in the next verse, in verse 5. By casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Hmm. Where's that going on in human beings? Where are my strongholds? Where are these arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God? By the way, the knowledge of God, we already defined that in John 17, 3. That's knowing, that's knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's eternal life. And what it's saying in these verses, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, it says these strongholds and arguments are in our mind where our thought life is. Check this out in the last part of verse 5. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Wow. That's how we deny access of Satan's power over our lives. Boy, I tell you, if you could write these verses down on a sticky note and put it on your mirror where you shave or you put on your, the ladies where you put on your makeup or put it on your refrigerator, put them on the dashboard of your car, put it anywhere where you're going to see it. Because we have 30,000 thoughts a day, according to neuroscientist uh, Caroline Leaf. 30,000 thoughts in a 16-hour waking cycle. Well, what I used to teach in the jails was how to push the pause button on the remote controls because they told me, the inmates told me, we can only control our thought lives in very short intervals. And I said, fine. How long? We cut all the way down to two seconds because I started at 60 seconds and we had no 45 seconds. No. Can you control your life, your thought life for 30 seconds? No. How about 15? No. We got all the way down to two seconds. And I said, fine. And the Holy Spirit's the one that, that gave that download to me and basically said, show them the, re-. I had an old TV in the, in the multipurpose room where I was teaching in jail there. And I, I said, well, how do I show them this? The Holy Spirit showed up and said, show them a remote control and show them the pause button on the remote control that they have. They are powerful when they push that pause button because whatever thought is in your mind 
has to stop if you push the pause button. You know, you know that from watching a DVR. Um, you know, at a at a home movie when you're or when you're watching a DVR a DVD rather. When you push that pause button, that image is frozen. It's not moving, and you can see all the details on that image that you wouldn't be able to see if it's moving very fast. And now we live in a society that says, hey, 5G is even better than 3G because it's faster. Great. That's just what we need. More information that's not being pushed through the filter of the Holy Spirit. I used to ask them, you know, coffee filters, would you make a cup of coffee without a filter? Do you see what the mess that coffee cup would look like if there were no filter? Well, in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that's describing what our minds look like when we don't have a Holy Spirit filter of taking every thought captive. The Jewish Bible is, I, th- I like that even better in verse 5 because it says taking every thought captive to make them obey Christ, to make them obey Yeshua in the Jewish Bible, to make them, in other words, telling to your thought, no. I am not going to think about bitterness of somebody I haven't forgiven. I'm not going to f- listen to that record which replays, you know, Aunt Tilly embarrassing me in, in the Thanksgiving dinner and humiliating me. And so to the point where I'm, I'm so tormented by this replay of these thoughts that never end that I make a vow against doing the will of God by saying I'll never forgive her. Come on. Every thought captive, be in the power seat by not giving permission to Satan to have access to remain in your mind. We can't control the thoughts that come to our mind. But what we can uh, remove authority from Satan is to allow those thoughts to stay in our mind. And notice how we, when we do that, we say, Satan, this thought, I just asked God. I asked Father God, Father, did you give me this thought just now? And he said, no, he didn't. Well, guess what? It's causing me torment and um, discomfort. I have the authority to bind that thought. Now picture binding the thought. To rebuke it, to cancel it, and to send it out of my mind and then no, don't leave it empty that's what Jesus said don't leave the house empty because you know that that demon will go to a dry place and then come back checking to see if it's cleaned out and not filled refilled replaced with the truth of God and if they see something that's a cleaned out empty house they'll come in with seven more demons even worse so we always have to when we bind something of Satan sending it out of our mind we always have to replace it with God's truth from his scripture. What is true about this? Oh, it says I should forgive Aunt Tilly because in the Lord's Prayer from God, it says, <laughs> I'm trying to think now, forgive us our sins. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Here, we, here it is. And forgive us our trespasses. Here's the second part. As we forgive those who trespass against us. It's very clear how we get set free from this mental torment. We're denying access to Satan to continue to have permission to insert thoughts into our mind about something that happened that was very hurtful to us, which caused... Hurt always happens first, and then it's followed by anger. And then anger, what does Paul say? Don't let the sun go down on your anger, lest a root of bitterness be formed in you. So this is what we're talking about when we're saying deny access to Satan to come in and have uh, permission to come in and put thoughts in your mind without that Holy Spirit filter. And you're saying no. I'm going to take every thought captive, freeze frame it, push the pause button, 
get that that get frozen image of that thought of saying, "Here I am again at the thank at the Thanksgiving table when she said those things that I didn't deserve," and you take him to God and you say, "That thought's back, Father. Did you give me this thought?" When he says, "There's no way I would give you a thought that would cause you to be hurt and to be angry and to be embittered." Well, then you have the authority to take that thought, bind it, break it, rebuke it, and cancel it by sending it out of your mind and then replacing the void, replacing the emptiness with the truth of Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came to deliver us from Satan's control. That's why he came. Check out Luke chapter 4 when he announces his his ministry. Check out Luke chapter 1 when Zechariah prophesied. When Zechariah prophesied, hey, the the reestablishment and restoration of the kingdom is so that we can be delivered from the hands of those who hate us. That's the Holy Spirit unction that fell on Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. Read that. That's the warfare of the kingdom in the spiritual realm trying to impact us who have authority. We give permission what influences us. We give that permission. We've been given exclusively that authority. And we can deny it to Satan. And when we deny that permission to have his thoughts controlling our mind, well, then we have cut off his supplies to his army. We've cut off his food source. We have cut off his ammunition. We have cut off all access to power over our lives. All access to his power over our lives. By obeying God to take every thought captive. The more we obey, the more we do, thy will be done. We are now beginning to appreciate the power that God has given us over the tactics of the enemy. Praise the Lord. I'm hoping that this will really empower you to get more engaged with participating in your thought life to make sure your thoughts are those that originate with God. Now you have some that obviously originate with you. Some of those are neutral, but most of the thoughts that cause you um, to be disrupted emotionally or spiritually or physically, they're not from, they're not from you and they're not from God. They're from the enemy. And you have the power to cut them off. I want to read this to you real quickly. This is um, the next chapter we're going to be doing for a thousand years. And it's just a couple of paragraphs. In the vision of John the Apostle, war in the heavens is portrayed as a conflict between two hosts or two armies of angelic warriors. One is led by the dragon, Satan, and the other by the archangel, Michael, in Revelations 12, verse 7. The dragon sweeps a third of the stars or angels from the heaven to the earth. And there's a cosmic conflict or spiritual warfare, which implies that it involves spiritual being by what Paul, the apostle, calls rulers and the cosmic powers over this present darkness in Ephesians 6.12. But it was humanity, however, that was unavoidably caught up in the fray. And given the dynamics of creation with its distinction between authority invested in human beings and power which is inherent in angels it couldn't be otherwise that man could somehow step aside and not be involved it was satan who needed authority for his rebellion and that could only come from man and he could not force human beings to to do anything but if he could deceive and entice all of humanity into submission to satan his influence he could obtain authority through man's own rebellion. So in essence, he usurped man's authority over the earth through influence 
and suggestions and temptations. With God now rejected as king over the earth and over us, man needed power to bolster his claim to dominion, and that could only come from rebellious angels. So, we will finish for a thousand years our next week when we talk about this. And until then, may you have many simple truth moments and simple truth victories. See you next week. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.